It's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, the podcast. You, the listening audience, will have the opportunity through episodes in this podcast to learn, dissect, and grapple with some of the issues involving those of us separated from our family of origin. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow and or give a five-star rating so others can find it too. During the course of your day, I hope you will tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in it, because word of mouth is the best way for me to grow the show. Remember to share this podcast on social media to spread the word, hashtag AdopteeLand. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, I hope you will consider making a donation to keep the show going at patreon.com forward slash AdopteeLand. Your contribution allows me to present a weekly episode free of advertisement and is greatly appreciated to add a valuable resource to the adoption community. Thank you so much for being here. My next guest was born in Chicago, my hometown and reached out to me for the purpose of having this conversation. His name is Kenneth Bonomo. I first heard him share part of his adoption story on the podcast, Who Am I Really?, hosted by Damon Davis. About two years have passed since Kenneth was a guest on Damon's show, and he now was interested in giving an update with me on this show. I'm honored by that and believe you will enjoy his message here about acceptance of the truth. In this episode, Kenneth will share part of the bigness of learning in adulthood that he is biracial. He has unpacked a lot about his identity upon learning new discoveries of his biological connections. He was adopted by two loving parents and had a very happy childhood, yet knowing more about his beginnings is paramount. You will hear his passion about accepting everyone, adoptive and birth family members, who played and continue to play a part in his full life. Allow me to introduce you to someone who is open to sharing his adoption journey every step of the way in the hopes that at least one other person knows that they are not alone. His willingness to give back to the adoption community is a joy to witness and is obvious in so many ways. Kenneth, it's so good to take this time to have a conversation with you. How are you doing today? Doing really good. Doing really good. Oh, I'm so glad. And I'm doing good, too. I want to start by asking you, what is a fun fact or a truth chuckle about you that people might not know? Well, <laughs> now that I think about I mean, the, the funniest thing that I, I, I can mention is the fact that for 52 years of my life, I did not know that I was biracial. I thought I was completely white. And I discovered that many people around me knew the truth when I myself didn't know it. (laughs) Yeah. 
And I look back and it's like, I, not, today I can look back and say, how did, how was I so blind? But And, I, uh, and you can laugh at it now, you're saying? Oh, oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I mean, there's, I think there's very good reasons why I felt the way that I, I wasn't fully knowing, but, uh, and I can laugh back, yeah. laugh at it. Yeah. Well, I know that you have had an opportunity to be on Who Am I Really? podcast hosted by Damon Davis and episode 88 I had a chance to listen to at least once. And Mm -hmm. so I know that was about two years ago. And so a lot has happened. And so for you to come on here today to bring listeners up to speed is wonderful. So wherever you want to start and however much you want to share. Okay. Well, I I was born in the, uh, the middle 60s in Chicago. And um, I was born in a, in a strange place. As an adoptee, I, I had always wondered where I was born. My own children were born in hospitals. And one of the hospitals that my kids were born at, they were given little shirts that said, life begins at Eastern Idaho Regional Medical Center. And I thought, that's kind of cute. I wonder where my life began. And so I was kind of hoping, I never thought I'd be able to find out the hospital I was born in, but uh, when Illinois allowed us to uh, get our original birth certificates, I was hoping I would be able to get the hospital I was born in, and I just had an address on it, and the address was 6500 West Irving Park Road, and it's like, well, okay, I wonder what that is. And I looked it up on Google, and I discovered that it actually yeah, in Google would said it was an asylum mm-hmm. and that was that was really I mean I that I that was one of the most depressing moments in my life because it would I had been so eager to discover that I was born in a hospital what hospital could I go to that hospital see where life begins and then to to discover that I'd been born in an, an asylum so not many people I think are born in asylums I'm right. sure there are some but it was information that I had discovered early. I should know. I should have had the heads up because, as a child growing up, my parents did not hide the fact that I was adopted. They, I was told I was adopted. I was told that my mother was very, very sick. That was the way it was phrased: very sick, and that she couldn't take care of me, and that's why I was adopted. And that they and my parents made it very clear that I was very, very loved. And so, that's something that I, you know, and. My parents were also told that my mother had schizophrenia. Basically, I, I was told that uh, I was of Polish-Swedish descent. Nobody knew anything about the father. And so, basically, when I did discover where I was born, it, it, it was it, it was kind of traumatic to some extent. I can remember being really depressed that day. Getting back to, to what happened, my parents then, I was put into foster home uh, for four months and then my parents got me in the month of August. They knew right off the bat that they were going to be able to adopt me. I have three other siblings, two sisters and a brother. They were all adopted. I was raised in a very good home. I was very happy. My mother doted on me. My uh, father, would, I mean, he was, I, he was my hero. And I mean, to this day, I feel this way about them. Mm-hmm. And they, um, they're white parents and you yeah. fit in physically. You're your physical traits. Here, here, 
yeah, here's the irony. I sent you all these pictures, and there's a reason why I sent you the pictures. Did, did, did you see the picture of the baby sitting in the lap the big, the, with my mother? If you remember, you might not remember it. Yes, I remember. But I was, I was very white-skinned, blue-eyed, blonde hair, and my mother was part Swedish. There was no indication that I was biracial. And so I stayed that way all the way up until I was like in first or second grade. Mm -hmm. And then the older I got, my hair turned dark brown and then turned into an afro. And at that point, probably when I was in second or third grade, I probably suspect my parents started to realize that there was a chance that I was biracial. Mm. And... you know, it's interesting. We talked a little bit earlier, and you asked me a question. Why do you think my parents didn't tell me that I might be biracial? I've had a while to think about it, and I think the real reason is uh, this was I was born in the mid-60s. This was uh, really, that was it was Jim Crow in the South. Being in Chicago, Chicago was a heavily segregated city. Right. And it was a situation where, I mean, even the presence of having a a biracial child in your neighborhood could cause problems mm. I mean, in, the, in the early 70s. Right. Because people would be worrying about things like property values. And as a little child, I don't know that I would be causing this kind of issue. But I think my parents feared kind of things like that. Mm. And so I think they went out of their way not to tell me because they knew I was going to go to school and say, hey, you know, I think I might be black. Right. And <laughs> in, in, in the early 70s, right. I mean, you know, if you think about it, because a lot of people don't realize in 1966, when Martin Luther King visited Chicago, they threw bricks and rocks at him, and he said he had been in many places like Mississippi and in in uh, in other states down south, and he had never had such a reaction that he got in Chicago. I remember and, that. Yeah, he said it was yeah, the worst he had seen. Yeah, and this is the situation. I was born into Chicago in this kind of a culture. Mm-hmm, that's <laughs> See, a good point. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize we've come a long ways. My mother was a white woman being impregnated by a black man in the nineteen late in the, in the middle sixties. Mm-hmm. There's danger both to my father from that kind of atmosphere yeah. and me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, the, in the height of the civil rights movement, yeah. There are people who would probably would have burned a cross on my parents' lawn had they realized that a biracial child was in their neighborhood. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I'm thinking I was born in 64 and I I just remember my parents moving into an area, Washington Heights, far south side of Chicago and white flight is what it was called would be like a major thing. Once one black family moved on that block, the whites were racing to sell their homes and it's like it turned from a white community to an all-black community overnight. And that was a thing. I know Michelle Obama in her book right. talks about the same experience. But so what I'm saying is this is this is what my parents had to worry about because now here's the child they adopted who was blonde hair and blue-eyed at birth, and now he's showing elements of being black. Right. As I say, I as a child, I, I met with comments from people, but I was too young. I was not even told that there was a chance that I could be biracial as a child. 
And so I never even thought of that. I just looked at my neighborhood. It was completely white. And I don't think my mom and dad wanted me to know because they were afraid I'd go tell people. And then the next thing you know, there's bricks being thrown through our window and crosses burned on the on the lawn. I hate to say that, <laughs> but that's, I think, think, why my parents went out of their way not to let me know what they they might have been thinking. And I don't think they ever then told me about it. So. And you mentioned to me in, in one of our conversations that it was said by a kid or uh, or someone, but then it oh. was disregarded, right? Oh, well, I had I had several kids. I mean, I was I don't want to use the, the term, but it's the worst of terms at school. And because I was in an all white school and I never even thought of the, the possibility of me actually being part African-American is that. Kids are mean. They call you a lot of different things. Right. You know, called everything in the book. Right. So it's like oh, they're just they're just. Call-. Now I look back and it's like, hmm. I wonder how many kids in my class parents well, may have seen me at school and say, hey, we've got uh, an African American in our school, and mm. the kids do, and I didn't. Mm-hmm. And as I say, this is why it's it's serious, but it's humorous because it's like I had no clue it, 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 that this was a possibility. Right. My wife tells me she thinks that I ran into a lot of uh, uh, microaggressions and that I had no clue about it. When I talked to her and described what it was like growing up, she says, that's not how we were raised. She could see that there were things that I was having to deal with that I just took for granted. I've got a pretty laid back personality. So I'm like, oh, well, you know, you have bullies and things like that. That's just part of life. And, mm-hmm. And, you know, and as I say, the circumstances, you know, for the middle 60s, you know, I was a lot more serious than I I realized. By and large, I did have one blessing. I was so much bigger than all the other kids in my classes that I people didn't tend to bother (laughs) me much. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So you you always known you were adopted. Your Mm -hmm. siblings were adopted. So this was something that was pretty open like it wasn't it wasn't like yeah you've not nobody's hiding anything keeping well you know you know i think it's kind of funny because i kiss i listen to so many of these adoption stories where people it's hidden i have one sister who is of latina looks my brother's german my sister's polish my mother's irish my dad's italian anybody just looked at our family and it's like (laughs) we had to be adopted right because we all look so radically different from one another. And because I had three other siblings that were always in various states of being adopted, we've always had social workers around and people like that. So I was raised heavily in the adoptee culture. And because I was so happily, I was so happy as an adoptee, I just assumed every adoptee had a happy situation and some of my siblings didn't. So it's like, <laughs> I'm, I guess I'm kind of blind. <laughs> Well, well, I know that I think it's good to have the support of adoptive parents with their children when they want to know the other part of themselves, you know, their their mm-hmm. biological family. And so you sounds like you did have that support from mm-hmm. your parents. Yes, mm-hmm. very much so. So at some point you decide to embark upon a reunion. And mm-hmm. so you, you want to tell me a little okay. bit about that. Well, what happened is, is, as I grew up, because I was so happily adopted, I took the attitude that I didn't really need to know anything about my biological family members. Mm. And 
I deep down felt that if I would look while my, I felt that if I would look for my biological relatives, it would be a, a sign of dis, a dishonoring my adoptive parents. Mm-hmm. Even though my mother encouraged me to look, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of funny. She would encourage me. My attitude was, hey, I don't need to. And then I got married and I had my kids and I wasn't so interested in looking, but my wife wanted to know, she's like, well, you know, we have our kids now and we just love to see what, what nationalities you are. And so she bought me a 23 and me birthday for, for my birthday. I thought, okay, well, this would be kind of cool. I spit in the tube and it came back. As I'd say, the Swedish was there, the Polish was there. And, and what I wasn't expecting was that it indicated that I was 30% of African descent. How did that make you feel when you learned that? To be honest, you know, it was talk about not knowing what your identity is. Did you like sit there and like just kind of in shock? I I was, I was totally in shock. (laughs) I mean, you know, as I say, it's kind of funny. I I sit there and I say, how couldn't you have known? Mm -hmm. There was one case that was really funny. I was sitting around the table in this one girl who who was african-american she looked at me and she said she included me in the african-american community that had never happened to me before Mm. it actually it makes me feel good now Mm -hmm. i mean because you know as an adoptee you don't have your sense of identity and she included me as being part of being an african-american and i said i looked at her and i said no i'm not right (laughs) right and the look on her face is still burned into my image right now because she looked at me and she said, you, her, the, her look said, you may not know it, but you are. Okay. <laughs> she, she gave me what, you know, that eye roll, you know, right. people give, you know, right. Okay. She's, her look said, you are so stupid. And I don't know that stuck in my mind, but I still, you know, I knew I was adopted, but at that point, there were no DNA tests. There were nothing to prove these things. That was the the very first time I, I thought it was an indication. And then when the DNA test came through, it's like, yeah, she was right. She, yeah, she yeah like that's really that's really something. When I think about that, I'm, I'm like, as an adoptee, we mm-hmm. don't know. Like we really like you learn something through a DNA test. And you're mm-hmm. like, yeah, well, I guess yeah, anything could be possible because there's so much I don't know. Because yeah. I remember in reunion, I learned that my great-grandfather is white. And I remember mm-hmm. thinking, yeah, my grandfather's father, he's white on my maternal side. And I was right. thinking like, yeah, that could be, you know, like, because there's so many unanswered questions. Yeah. As I say, that, I mean, that, that was a, that, as I say, that happened like three or four years ago. And you're constantly reassessing your identity. Mm-hmm. One thing that I liked about my wife when we, we discovered this, she said, don't be afraid. Find everything out. Mm-hmm. Don't deny who you really are. Right. Okay. Because I think for some people, it would be, be easier to say, wow, I, that, that's a can of worms I don't want to open. Mm-hmm. My wife said, no, open it. It's the best thing that I ever did. Because this is one of the things. If somebody would ask me, what's your race? I'd have to say mixed because I've scratched enough and I now know mm-hmm. I've got, I've got a white grandmother, a, a, a black grandmother, a white grandfather and a black grandfather. <laughs> right. Right. And that's who, that's who I am. Right. 
you know, I, I announced it to, you know, because I, I, I have my uh, adoptive families, my cousins and other relatives, I got on the the list and I let everybody know, you know, they knew I was adopted and this was the thing that was hidden. For those who didn't know, I said, I'm, I'm biracial. How did that, you know? how did that go over with them? For the most part, very, very good. Actually, it's kind of funny. I have a cousin, an adoptive cousin, who um, has a child who's biracial. I think one of her old boyfriends she had a son with. So she had a biracial child. And her finding out that I'm biracial, that whole family took to that. It's like, wow, this is great. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but the cousin I grew up with all along is biracial, too, just like my son. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was taken... Well, there may be a few that didn't, because I'll be honest, you know, some of my adoptive family members, not 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 my parents, because my parents, I think they, they defended they, they defended me and they were there wasn't a bone of racism in, in my my parents. But I've had I have uncles and that were very racist. And as a little kid, I'd be hearing this never knowing one day I would be discovering. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I just got yeah, I just got chills when you said that because I'm picturing uh, your white family thinking you're white mm. and saying things that maybe they mm. would only say around whites. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, it, 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 you know, I, I think it work, that does it, it, it does work that way. Mm-hmm. People will speak differently. I, and I, you know, when I was working in um, McDonald's and I was working amongst African Americans and I can look back now <laughs> and I could tell when I was in the workroom, there'd be times when I was the, uh, the only white person in the workroom. And I, I noticed that they talked that the African Americans would talk differently without any other whites there. Mm-hmm. And I did not realize they could see with my, with, with my, there, there's something they could tell and they'd speak a little bit differently. Right. Yeah. The pictures it's, you showed me, yeah, like I could there there was there was a picture where I said, "Yeah, I see biracial." And then there was another picture where I I didn't see it, where you looked white and I Yeah, it's really tricky. See, that's why <laughs> that's why I sent you all those pictures. Right. I sent you, because I'm a chameleon. Yeah. Under certain circumstances I look very right white. Yes. Under certain circumstances I look very black. Mm-hmm. And I had a chance with a lot of my family members to know exactly where they stood right. <laughs> before I even knew that I was by. Right. That is, so, and, that's fascinating. Mm. So to get, you know, to get back to the story, when I took the, the t- DNA test, the first thing that I noticed, there was a really high match and I was able to get in touch with a first cousin once removed who, who was my, my mother's first cousin, my biological mother's first cousin. Luckily for me, he's still alive because he's in his 80s. My mother, she had died in 1980. So he knew my mother and she was, he was the first person I had talked to that knew my biological mother. And he told me that she was beautiful. She had a good singing voice. He was able to unravel everything from my maternal side. He basically was a genealogist and he was able to give me my... Uh, family tree all the way back into Poland into the 1700s. He was able to give me the name of my half-sister through using obituaries and other things like that. I was able to track down my (laughs) half-sister. Getting in touch with her was a little bit hair-raising because I was a little bit afraid. Because I knew I was conceived and was born in the asylum, I did not know whether she knew I existed or not or how she would take it. But she had known. We had a, we've, we've had a really good reunion. Well, that's good. That's really and so good. 
so I got to know her and I got to know her, her daughter, my niece. And, uh, it, and it's been very helpful. The hard part was finding my paternal side. I actually had a breakthrough on my paternal side long after I, well, not long after, but maybe a year after I had found my, my half sister, my mother's child. I got in touch with one person and I asked them if he, if he knew the fam, there was, there was the, the family name that I was matching. There was a, there was a, a high match of mine and I asked him if he knew, um, I'll just say the Jones family. Uh, and I said, do you know, do, do you know anything about the Jones family? And he says, ah, well, I don't know anything about the Jones family, but maybe my mom does. I'll get in touch with my mom. And so he got in touch with his mom. She wrote back and said that she told me who her grandfather was and who her, her great grandfather was. I did not realize she had just given me the tools at that point to be able to figure out everything about, you know, who my father was and everything was that. It turns out this man's mother was my, is my first cousin once removed. Mm. Being able to do the tree from there, going up and down the line, I was able to discover, okay, I know which family I am. And there was actually one thing that was very, very helpful. She saw my picture and she said, you got blue eyes like our whole family has. Mm. <laughs> and that may not seem like a big clue to, to many people, but... There, there are not many African-Americans that have blue eyes. Mm-hmm. So when you have a family that has predominantly blue eyes, I knew, okay, I have just found my family. I sent her a message. And this is kind of funny because I thought she had given up on me. I asked her a message and I, I had, after doing my family tree, I, I discovered that my mother and my father were of two different generations. My father was almost 60 and my mother was almost 30. That plays into centimorgans, and those of you who are into centimorgans know what I mean. That threw everything that I was trying to do to try to figure out who my father was. I realized, oh, wow, my father is actually an older generation. He had to be born around 1906. My parents were born around 1930, and I had assumed that my all my parents would be born in the 1930s, but my, my father was born in 1906. So I was able to use that information. I was able to narrow who my father was down to like four gentlemen. And I figured, oh, this should be like shooting fish in a barrel. How many people get born in, a, in an asylum? My father must have been in the, in the asylum. And he was? What it turns out is that he was in the asylum. <laughs> okay. So my mother was in the asylum. And basically, what, what, and this is the way it actually happened. I asked my question and I shot her this message over Ancestry. And if anybody knows about Ancestry, you you ask a question over Ancestry and you don't know if it's ever going to be answered or if it's ever going to be returned. Well, it turns out that the person who who took the test that I matched, he's a college student and he only looks at he doesn't look at his Ancestry account at all. His mother likes it, but his mother will only look at it when they visit at Christmas break. (laughs) (laughs) So one Christmas break, she sends me a message, and then I don't hear from her again. And I figured, oh, she must have um, given up on me, and she's not going to give me any more information. And it turns out the next Christmas Eve, she gets in contact with me because she was visiting her son. She went to his Ancestry account, looked it up, and said, oh, wow, I never did get back to him. <laughs> hmm. 
and so then she called me and she told me, she says, oh, you know, um, I don't know anybody that's in my relatives. She was assuming she and I were first cousins. Actually, she she was the generation below me because she was born the same year I was born. So she's sitting there thinking, OK, well, we have to be we have to be cousins when she was really my first cousin once removed. And she said, I don't know. The only information I could get is that my great grand, my great uncle was in an asylum in northern Illinois. <laughs> and then she mentioned the name that I had suspected because I had limited it down to four different people, four brothers. Three brothers were were buried in cemeteries in the south side of Chicago. One brother was buried in the suburbs outside. And I figured my father's most likely going to be the one that's buried in the, in the suburbs. And he was, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it turned out that he had been in the asylum and the, the, the whole story, the best way I can figure this out. And truth is, is stranger than fiction. The thing that was really confusing when I discovered that I was biracial in the 1960s, 1960s, it's like, how could that happen? The only way I can see is there's one thing, one place that was not desegregated in Chicago in 1964. It was the asylum. Nobody would think think and say, oh, well, we have to have two different asylums. You had you had Dunning Asylum. What it appears to have happened is, is my biological father was interred. Well, not interred, but it was a terrible place. He was put into the asylum and his family had to fight to get him released from the asylum. They did. And he was released. And I suspect he got to know my mother while he was in the asylum. And my mother, and this is a a strange thing, she had checked herself into the asylum when she was. And I I think she checked herself into the asylum because I believe she was being abused. She may have been being abused by her husband. In those days, many people, there, there was no out for some women. You know, she had signs of mental illness. And she thought she'd be better off committing herself. She could leave the asylum and, you know, go shopping or do whatever she wanted. And then she'd check herself back in. Well, I believe what had happened is, is she got to know my biological father in the asylum. He got released. When she would have her day trip, she would get out and she'd visit my father mm. and then one day she came back after her day trips and she was pregnant. <laughs> the information that I got my sister is that after that happened, she was never allowed to get out at, again. So I think she had a relationship with my father through the asylum. He was released. Then she was forced to give me up, obviously. And uh, that's how I ended up being adopted. Mm-hmm. So in the last two years, you have unpacked your story even more. And what would you say has probably probably been the most profound things you've discovered or learned? I mean, there's so much. One of the problems about doing an hour interview, there's so so much that goes <laughs> into my, my adoption. I mean, because it's, it's, it, I mean, I'm part Scandinavian. The one thing I left out couple of years ago, I, I did not know what my grandfather, my maternal grandfather looked like. And I thought I was never going to know what he looked like. And the next thing I know, somebody from one of the uh, DNA tests writes to me and says, oh, my name is, um, I won't tell her name, but she's, I'm from Sweden. And my great grandfather's 
brother left Sweden in 1927, never to be heard of from again, and were matching. Can you tell me about him? Well, it turns out that was that was my uh, my maternal grandfather. So I have relatives, second cousins in Sweden I relate with. You sit there and you say, okay, now I, I'm talking to Swedish people. Am I Swedish? <laughs> okay. I mean, here's right. where you get this. This is where I get the identity. This is, this is the main thing that I find the adoption experience that is so confounding for me. She sent me a picture of my grandfather and I put it next to my own picture. And it's like, man, I look a little bit like him. And then I sit there, am I Swedish? And then then I get in touch with my uh, my African-American relatives and they send me their pictures and I see their pictures and it's like, man, I look like them. Right. That's... Then I look at my Polish grandmother and it's like there's a bittersweetness about knowing all that I've learned. Mm-hmm. I now know what my Swedish relatives look like. I've had people from Sweden sending me their pictures, wishing me Christmas, sending me Christmas cards and stuff like that. And it's like I belong to all of these people. Right. Okay. It's like, how do you piece together, you know, Damon's who am I really? It's like, I've got people in Stockholm that are writing me. I've got people on the South side of Chicago that I'm related to. And I, and I love them all. Right. Yeah. So it's like your culture is so rich. (laughs) Here's the other thing. And this is another thing that would drive me crazy. I was raised by an Italian. My father, my adoptive father was Italian and I loved him. Dearly. And, you know, when I looked out of my crib, I saw an Italian father. Okay. And I saw his, my uncles that look Italian. You know, you see, watch the movie, The Godfather. That was the culture. My mother had to cook Italian food because my grandmother was from Italy. My adoptive grandmother was from Italy. Mm. So I was given the Italian culture. My mother was, my mother was 100% Irish. All my adoptive cousins, lots of them, they're all Irish <laughs> and I would be sharing St. Patrick's day mm-hmm. and, you know, sharing the Irish culture that my mother had sharing the Italian culture that my father had. And you sit there and this, this was the biggest thing that hit me. What am I to all these people? <laughs> and what I've learned is everybody that I'm dealing with is part of me. There is nobody calling me to have to necessarily join a side. That's why I typify myself as being biracial. It's because I I love all of the all of the people around me. Sure. Yeah. I, I have to admit, this is where the bittersweetness comes in. Sometimes I feel like I'm at the door of all of these groups. I don't feel like I can totally enter into any group completely. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean by I, that? I totally know what you mean. And even though my lived experience is very different than yours, I often feel like I don't really belong because I don't have the history with my birth family in reunion. I just have where we're starting from now. And then in my adoptive family, that's not my tribe. I had a wonderful adoptive family. Like you, my parents were the best. I don't have mm-hmm. any negative to say about in my extended family I was close and still am with my cousins and and all of that but yet that's not my biological family so I don't sometimes feel like I belong in either place <laughs> you know like I I am yeah yeah but what, where I do belong is in the adoption community it, it became real clear to me over 10 years ago that once I got connected I felt like oh I'm not having to fit in here I've truly belong 
we have our own individual stories, but we have that separation in common and, and we can start from just saying, hey, I'm an adoptee and everybody can just nod their head because we know what comes along with that. A lot of unanswered questions, a lot of oh. roller coasters and things like that. And we belong in that group. <laughs> and and so you got involved with the adoption community as an See, adult, I, right? I, yes. See, I think that the adoption community is something that is so good for the adoptee. Yes. When I'm, as I described this story to you, I knew you could understand what I'm saying there. Right. Okay. Right. Like, for instance, I was raised with Irish culture and Italian culture, but I don't, I look in the mirror and I don't look Irish and I don't look Italian. Okay. So I'm very aware of that. <laughs> I remember when I took the DNA test, I was like praying, oh, oh, please, lots of Irish, lots of Italian, <laughs> oh, please. And well, of course it didn't happen, but that's where, as I say, I feel close to my adoptive family, but I'm not completely in the room right. because I, because I know DNA wise, I'm not. I get in touch with my Swedish cousin and she's very good. She, she teaches me so much about what, what Swedish culture is like. And I know that I look in the mirror and I can see my uh, traces of my grandfather in my face, but I know that I'm never going to be a Swede. You know, am I sweet? You know, you know, I'm a quarter Swede. Am I Swedish? No, not really, <laughs> but I can't deny the fact that, you know, I'm part of that community, but I'm not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And so, but what's nice about the adoption community is people can understand that. I I think my my wife's first attitude, and I think that she's seeing it and she's understanding it better. She knows what it's like to be raised in a biological family with culture and everything lining up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. When you're an adoptee, you've been raised with culture, but it doesn't line up perfectly anywhere. But what I've learned is, is it's nice to be able to talk with the adoption community. You know, I hear so often people discuss the um, the primal wound. I think, in my opinion, that's what the primal wound is, is that you you are raised with certain cultures, but you're in values, but your DNA doesn't totally line up with where <laughs> where you're at exactly you yeah it's the i think that's why when adoptees can get together and talk we can understand that it's like okay some people call it the primal wound some call it different things i think that it's being raised in a situation where you're there but you're you're almost there but not completely there and only an adoptee would understand what that what i just said <laughs> well put yes very often i will find people say things like well you had a great father and mother, you know, mm-hmm. your, your family. And I, and I'm not denying it. My dad is still my hero and my mother doted on me. <laughs> There's, but the fact is that there was DNA differences between my mother and father and I, you know, it's kind of funny now that I have my biological children, I know what it's like to be a biological family member. I can look at my daughter and I know what she's thinking. <laughs> And I know why she's thinking it, because she, we share that DNA bond. Mm-hmm. Now, my son, I don't necessarily think like him, but my wife looks at him and she understands him. So there's at least one parent who, <laughs> right. you know, can figure out each of my children either line up with my with my wife or with me. Mm-hmm. It, it's easier for biological family members to know what's going on in the heads of their children. And thus they can work together. 
Yeah, that I DNA is real powerful. Yeah, it is. Let's say you're a hot-tempered person, and you're you're being raised by totally choleric parents who's a, or not not choleric but calm parents who don't understand what it feels like to be hot-tempered. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're setting yourself up for collision because it's like I don't understand what you're doing or why you're feeling the way you do. My mother was kind of a hot-tempered person, and I'm kind of calm, laid back. I think it was easy for her. That's why I think maybe in some ways she, we and I got her got along so well. If she had a baby who was so totally compliant and never clashed with her, it's like, wow, this is kind of neat. <laughs> Whereas, see, that's where sometimes I think adoptees can fall, land into a home where it's perfect because the, the personalities match. Mm-hmm. But I sometimes, can see that, yeah. But sometimes I think adoptees end up in homes where... I'll give you a good example that really wasn't so good for me. My mother was not the brightest student at all. She was not very good at school. And I ended up being able to get a master's in English. I was intellectually more developed than my mother was. And so when I went to school, because she didn't do well in school, I'd get C's and and my mom was good with it because she's like, well, C's are good. But the teachers would tell my dad, my dad would hear this, he's underachieving, he should be doing better. My mom never could, she could not foster my education. She didn't have the the ability to do so. And so there's where an adoptee is being raised by somebody who has different genetics, different ways of processing the world, and that causes friction. And I think that's what we hear in all these adoptee stories. Sometimes the families mesh. I think with biological family members, it's it's easy because if you got a, a mom and a dad in the family, somebody's going to be sharing something with the child. That's a good point Not, you make. And, you know, when you hear so often, you'll hear the adoptees say something like, I'm creative and my family couldn't understand it. Mm-hmm, <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. If, right. if, you're, if you're given creativity... And your family, your the the parents who are trying to raise you are not creative at all. They're not going to understand your need to draw or express yourself. Mm-hmm. And then then along comes the friction. What's so good about the adoptive community is you can get together and talk to other people who've experienced this and realize adoption is a wonderful thing. Let me put it this: I'm so glad that I was adopted. I mean, I don't. There's no way my mother could have taken care of me in an asylum. Mm-hmm. But th- there's always going to be differences. Very often, people who are adopting the children won't understand, oh, that's different. You know, there's a difference between my personality and your personality, and it's coming from DNA. It's coming from the nature piece. And, you know, I could just go on and on with this conversation because it's so fascinating to me. I know adoptees that have said they were adopted into, like, highly ambitious families, and they struggled in that right. area. Yeah, things like that. Like that we could go on and on talking about yeah. that. Yeah. And for the family because there's this frustration because the nature part is different. I know a family who adopted a child and the family adopted the child and they had like five biological children. And the mother and father were both doctors. And the, then this other siblings were able to become doctors and lawyers. And the adoptee didn't get the gene right right so that poor person feels like i can tell especially being an adoptee that adoptee is feeling totally out of place in their family and it's like yeah i'm the ugly i'm the ugly duckling Mm -hmm. everybody else can go to college and become a doctor and i can't and that must make me a loser no you're not a loser right (laughs) right 
your gifts are different from the gifts that your adoptive family has. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, the hardest thing that adoptees have to realize is when you're mixing and matching with, with different DNA, sometimes it works out. For me, it worked out really good. But for others, it, it can be painful. So. Well, this I have enjoyed. This conversation mm -hmm. I have truly enjoyed. And so is there anything that I didn't ask you that you want to share in closing? Mm, let's see. Well, actually, it's been a good, it's a good conversation. Yeah, I pr pretty much touched everything that I, I wanted. I, I guess the main point that I wanted to, to illustrate is the fact that um, in my situation with being adopted, I've learned to make peace with the fact that everything's not necessarily going to line up. Not perfectly that you know especially you know i was raised with irish and italian they adopted me i can adopt that culture but on the other hand i did i will not renounce any of my bi biological ties mm -hmm. <laughs> that's part of me i did not know what my personality type was until i started talking to my my swedish relatives they're leery to let somebody in but once they let people in they let you in completely i could always tell when i would listen to your show that you and I would have a good discussion. <laughs> well, I thank you. you. Were, I knew you. I knew you were a kindred spirit. That's that's why I I said I got to talk to her. Oh, I so appreciate and, you reaching out to me, and and this has been most wonderful. And I just thank you again for taking the time out to have this conversation and be on here. Mm -hmm. I appreciate the chance. It was really nice. Kenneth said that he felt we are of kindred spirits, and I couldn't agree more. From the moment we first talked in preparation for this episode, I knew sharing our conversation with you would be of great value. I want to give a big shout out to his wife, Nancy, for being a big support to him during a time that he wasn't too interested in knowing more to his story as an adoptee. She encouraged him to take a DNA test by gifting him with a kit. And once he received his results... Nancy suggested that he consider knowing as many answers as possible about himself in order to fully embrace his whole identity. Kenneth is the first adoptee I've had the opportunity to speak with who is biracial and didn't have any idea of that for decades. I especially like his ability to deeply examine why his adoptive parents and other adults were likely protecting him in their way from the racism of the 1960s during his childhood by not discussing the possibility of him being born to a black father and a white mother. It seems plausible that his life in a place like the Chicagoland area would have been quite different had the whites in his neighborhood known he was biracial. I can only imagine some of the racist conversations heard through the years from some family members, excluding his adoptive parents, were painful recollections once he learned of his true identity. Kenneth has had a lot to reflect on over the last couple of years as it relates to being from biological parents who were both at an asylum together, a generation apart in age and of different ethnic backgrounds during the height of the civil rights movement. There are still many unanswered questions for Kenneth, but he is persevering on to learn as much as he can through photographs and conversations with both sides of his birth family. He has an interest in genealogy, and I have no doubt that he will gather more information about the past as it relates to him. I like his enthusiasm and positive attitude about knowing all of the parts of himself, like being from Swedish and Scandinavian descent, 
having blue eyes, looking like a white man sometimes, a biracial person at other times, and having black paternal family members. And it is all so fascinating to him being raised in a loving Italian and Irish family. He embraces all of these truths that begin to satisfy a question he continually poses to himself. Who am I really? Thank you, Kenna, for reaching out to me and having this conversation. I'm thrilled that you did that because it was a delight to meet you, hear a part of your story, and share it on this podcast. For others to get to know you, too. You are an excellent example of how we, as adoptees, can learn some truths and be empowered by them. Because of the perspective we choose to take about our journey in adoption land. If you are an adoptee and would like to share your adoption journey, please visit jenniferdianeghoston.com. Thank you so much for being here and be sure and follow me on Instagram at Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land.